Welcome to the nationally syndicated In the Oil Patch radio show with Kim Bellotto, broadcasting from the Port of Corpus Christi studios. Get more on the Port of Corpus Christi at portofcc.com. In the Oil Patch radio show will give you an inside look at the oil, gas, and energy industry and how it affects you from industry experts and government officials right here on the In the Oil Patch radio show. And now it's time for me to welcome on my guest, Jeff Robertson, who is Managing Director for Water Tower Research. Jeff, welcome to In the Oil Patch Radio Show. Thanks, Kim. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, this is the first time on our show, and I was interested to see, uh, to bring you on the show and talk a little bit about Water Tower Research, what you guys do. You seem to be very specifically driven into research, which, hello, that's in the title. But specifically, uh, today I want to talk about uh, an energy report that you released on what your findings are. But first, let's talk a little bit about what is, first of all, your background. You are a veteran at Lehman Brothers. You also worked at Barclays. You have a lot of background pertaining into finance, but you also hold an MS degree in geology from Texas A&M University and an MBA from Southern Methodist University. So let's talk a little bit about you and your background, then we'll get into what Water Tower Research does before we get into the report. background, Kim, is I got degrees in geology in the, in the 1980s at that time oil prices were very low i decided to go to business school did that at smu started working at an investment banking boutique in 1990 essentially the same month that saddam hussein invaded kuwait for the first gulf war so that set off a oil price rally that was relatively short-lived but i spent roughly 30 years or nearly 30 years as a sell-side research analyst covering primarily small and mid-sized oil and gas producers Depending on the price of oil, sometimes those mid-cap producers became large-cap producers. And then if oil prices or natural gas prices weakened, they went back to be small-cap producers. So it's really a multi- I've been covering oil and gas stocks through multiple cycles, really beginning in 1990, going all the way up until uh, today. Very good. Now let's switch gears and talk a little bit about Water Tower Research. It's a very interesting group. I, I think sometimes I'm when I was doing research for the show, I see you cover different areas, Water Tower Research. So so tell us a little bit about what the what you guys do. Water Tower was put together basically to fill a void that was created by the traditional cell side research firms like Barclays and Lehman Brothers, uh, where I used to work, is they have tended to go toward higher market cap companies. It's really left a void with small and mid-sized companies Mm -hmm. to where they don't get a lot of attention um, from the traditional sales side. So our goal is to help provide a voice to those types of companies to provide basically fundamental quality research that an investor might be able to use to help form an opinion about a company. We don't recommend stocks. We don't provide price targets. We just try to provide the basics of what a company does, what the business outlook is, and what management strategy is to try to to to, deli- to, to deliver value. Give me some examples of how a company would utilize you guys, because I'm a little, I don't really quite understand all of what you just said in the way, how would a company utilize you? Can you give me a specific, not the company per se, but a specific example of how a company wanted research from you guys? to help better a decision they were going to make? Sure. Typically, it's for companies that probably get little to no research coverage from their traditional sell-side research providers who have trading desks and provide investment banking services and all those types of financial services. 
We don't do that. What we basically try to do is to provide a fundamental view of a company and the fundamental view of where earnings could be, where cash flows could be, and help in in a way help get help a company broadcast their business and what they do to uh, to the investor universe. Mm-hmm. To help them grow and scale from maybe being a smaller invest company that has got smaller uh, amounts of money to much larger investors that are looking at them or to help them grow yeah. specific? Yes, at least to draw more eyeballs in to, to a company and help. We try to put investors and companies together so investors might want to learn more about the companies we cover. And we try to help the companies increase their reach toward in, into the investment community. So we distribute research to uh, basically, anybody who wants to access it through our website, it's our website is essentially open access. So a individual can read our research, a stockbroker or a financial advisor can read our research. We distribute to institutional investors. And the, the, what we offer is, again, it's fundamental research. It's to no charge to the research consumer because we're not trying to provide buy, sell, hold recommendations. We don't have a trading desk. We don't provide financial advice. We don't provide financial advice to companies. We just try to help companies get the message out as to what they're doing. What are the areas that you focus on? Because you guys are very specific. Energy is obviously one of them. Are there other areas that you look at as well? Yes, we have. uh, We cover energy, obviously, which is what I do, natural resources. uh, More broadly, we cover climate and sustainable technology. We have some consumer a discretionary an analyst. We have an analyst that does consumer hard lines like furniture. We have an analyst who does some chemicals and materials type companies. We have a couple of people who look at healthcare sectors so, and some technology. So it's really pretty broad based as far as what the firm tries to do and the type of companies that we try to that we try to engage with. It's a pretty hard market. I mean, I've been doing a lot of work as of recently in this area. And what I'm coming up with is you're right that it's, well, first of all, lending has become a problem. And if you're small, it's even harder to find anybody to invest in you. And you really have to go out there and find your own money. So anything that a company is doing research-based to help really does help. So let's get on to why I wanted to bring you on the show, Jeff. Um, So a recent report that... um, you guys released as of November 14th, you watched, you you listed five trends to watch in 2024. Key points were geopolitical tension. We're going to cover that. Natural gas prices, consolidation, cap returns, and carbon capture and sequestration. Let's begin with natural gas prices. So as we are doing this show, uh, the Biden administration has announced they are going to halt um, natural gas permitting for a little while to review. I think they listed it for the economic and environmental impact, um, as well as they are reassuring everyone that our allies will still continue to get the necessary natural gas supply that we have been giving our our allies in Europe. There is going to be a provision in there, but just high level. Tell me, what does your firm think on this halting of natural gas permitting? I think it's really halting new approvals of LNG export facilities. Um, The U.S. has, I think this year, was, was exporting record levels of LNG. So 
The U.S. exports a lot of LNG. That's expected to grow through existing facilities that are under construction and operational today. But I think what the administration announced last night was a pause on approving new facilities. And I think thank you for clarifying that. I should have done, I should have said that that way. But yes, and, and when you think when you think about North American natural gas markets, it's especially the U.S. But North America in general, it's very well supplied. So natural gas prices, absent the volatility that was created in 2022 because of the uncertainty around European gas supplies after Russia invaded uh, Ukraine and whether or not Europe was going to have enough natural gas for the winter, natural gas prices spiked in the summer of 2022. And then once it became clear that the winter of 22-23 was relatively mild and Europe wasn't going to have big issues, natural gas prices really started to fall. And this year have been uh, pretty weak. I think the longer term story for natural gas, at least in the US that many people have pointed toward, was there's a lot of LNG export capacity. There's a lot of LNG export capacity or LNG projects that are on the drawing board that could significantly increase export capacity from the US that would allow more gas to leave the US, therefore, uh, maybe tighten up the market for, for, from a producer standpoint, give access to markets that might trade at higher prices. So all of that, I think, pointed toward increased gas demand, increased capacity, and ultimately that could lead to a price which would support more drilling to fill that excess capacity. So right now, with the announcement from the administration last night, new new build capacity is on hold. And how long that lasts and what the review process um, ultimately takes is to be determined, I think. One of the things I, I inferred from the statement that was put out by the White House was they want to review how LNG projects will impact climate. That's some of the same language they used around offshore leasing is to slow down the leasing process to get a better, better understanding of how offshore oil and gas development would ultimately impact climate. And there's an awful lot of uncertainty with how all of that plays out. And I, th I think it's a, there's a lot to be determined as how that, how that works and how these determinations are made as to whether these types of projects can get permitted and get built. But what it does is create uncertainty in terms of capital providers, in terms of companies who are pursuing these projects and ultimately in terms of customers who may want to contract for long-term LNG supplies, because most of these projects are underwritten by long-term supply agreements with customers. And all of those pieces have to come together for these projects to actually reach a final investment decision. And right now that's up in the air. I think the important thing to recognize also is you said that it can have long-term, if this continues, long-term impact. And we should all be concerned about the environment and climate change. But I just want to point out that natural gas is one of the cleaner burning fuels. And it also is, I have a hard time wrapping my head around this is just what I think, not what you think, Jeff. But I do not believe that there is any other country in the world that produces natural gas in the most greenest, most environmentally friendly way. So if they're going to need to get natural gas from somewhere to supply the world, why not it be the United States versus a country that has absolutely no uh, standards in place? And if so, they're very, very loose. So 
that's my opinion on this. And hopefully we'll we'll see what what happens here in the near future with the election. Let's take a quick break. When we return, I want to get into your report on natural gas. Uh, You're listening to a new oil patch radio show. We'll be right back. In the oil and gas industries, you don't just need a workers' comp provider. You need a workers' comp provider who understands your business. That's Texas Mutual Insurance Company. At Texas Mutual, they've created the Texas Oil and Gas Association Safety Group exclusively for businesses involved with exploration and production. That means you'll have access to information and safety resources that fit the way you work. But the advantages don't stop there. As a safety group member, you'll receive a premium discount on your workers' comp. Plus, you can qualify for double dividends. You heard that right. Members can earn an additional dividend on top of the one you receive as a policyholder. It's all part of Texas Mutual's commitment to working as a partner with the businesses that keep our state running. Texas Mutual and the Texas Oil and Gas Association, two great organizations that are even better together. To see if you qualify to become a safety group member, go to TexasMutual.com TXOGA. And we're back. You're listening to in the Oil Patch Radio Show. My guest today is Jeff Robertson, who's Managing Director at Water Tower Research. The Biden administration has halted new facilities uh, and mostly under the belief that they want to research climate, you know, how this will affect the climate along with economic impacts and other things. In the past, we have seen other elected officials and this administration sometimes take something in the energy sector and stop it. You mentioned while we were on break that you could look at the federal leases in the same kind of capacity. We know that day one when he came into the administration, he signed an executive order killing the Keystone Pipeline, which is completely dead now. Totally, because it went through too many years of litigation and up and down. And it appears as though now maybe LNG is in the crosshairs because it is an election cycle. What are your thoughts on is this, first of all, um, in, in, in any way being used to to further that agenda? And then also, how is the energy industry going to react? Um, you mentioned about how long this goes really does matter. Um, our election is in November. So what are your thoughts on this? I think there's there's clearly a move among a lot of the regulatory agencies in the in the administration and even a, the climate change lobby globally to move away from fossil fuels. We saw that at the recent uh, COP28 meeting, uh, in which interestingly was held in the Middle East, where a lot of fossil fuels get produced and a lot of economies are heavily dependent on it. But I think there's the long term trend is to try to move the energy system away from as being heavily reliant on fossil fuels toward cleaner energy. There's a lot of scale issues involved in doing that and a lot of challenges that will take long a long time, years to, to overcome as opposed to one administration cycle or one one decade. I mean, that, that's a multi-decade transition. I think that as a result, Banks have made it more difficult to lend money to to oil and gas operations in places like Alaska. Um, they've made it more difficult to lend money and finance coal projects. And so it's, it's a multi-pronged impact to try to push investment into cleaner energy alternatives. Meanwhile, demand for oil continues to grow. And may, it's mainly from non-OECD countries who may be in energy poverty situation and access to clean or access to inexpensive fossil fuel energy might help lift certain parts of the world 
or economies out of energy poverty. So they might be quite receptive to it, while the developed world is pushing more toward green alternatives. Um, that's kind of a push and pull between the developed world and the undeveloped world. In, in the U.S., where we live, and in Texas, in North America, you mentioned Keystone, U.S. oil production and U.S. gas production is at record levels, despite the roadblocks that have been put up from a regulatory standpoint. Um, the, the industry has overcome a lot. I think I read recently that Canadian oil production had reached record levels, despite the fact that the Keystone pipeline isn't going to be built. So the industry is doing a lot with what they can, which ultimately is good for consumers because it's pushed oil prices down to end of the 70s. Natural gas prices have been reduced to $2.50 plus or minus, and depending on what coal fronts coming to the country. So all of that's good for consumers and um, because it helps inflation, it helps the cost of everything that uses oil and natural gas and transportation. So really the industry probably deserves a lot of credit for being able to to deliver low priced energy despite a lot of the roadblocks that have been put up uh, in front of it. Yes, in Shell Magazine, our editor-in-chief, Robert Rapier, who also writes as a senior contributor for Forbes, last month had listed that in the data that he reviewed, the United States set record levels for crude. And then this month, we had breaking record levels in natural gas as well. So despite everything that they are going through, they're still managing to provide a way to be able to provide natural gas to, of course, our allies. Let's, let's, uh, we've got a few minutes, so we're going to break into a little bit of natural gas prices you're finding. We'll probably have to go into break and then return on the backside of that. Tell us a little bit about your report and what you are estimating from 2022 to 2023 when we talk about natural gas prices, Henry Hub spot natural gas prices. Sure. Gas prices, uh, well, the gas price forecast for 2024 has probably come down every month for the last couple of months. Um, gas prices, I think, were about $375 in October. Uh, they're down well below $3 today. A lot of they spiked up earlier this month because of cold weather. And it's pretty clear that uh, unless you get more cold weather, the U.S. market is well supplied for 2024. So my guess is gas prices probably remain in the 250 to $3 type of range for this year, depending on what season we're in. Um, it's hard to really say that there's a lot of upside to gas prices from current levels, unless something, something unexpected happens. In other words, weather either turns very cold in the back half of winter, or you have some sort of uh, supply disruption due to tropical weather season in the Gulf of Mexico. In the, in the third and early fourth quarter. But right now it looks like the gas price outlook is fairly muted um, for the rest of this year. And as I said earlier, I think part of the longer term benefit or story with behind natural gas prices was a concept that LNG export capacity out of the US would increase over time, um, pretty materially from where it is today. And that could help provide uh, support to gas prices and get it, but because you need an incentive for producers to go out and drill new wells. We've seen the rig count for gas in, in plays like the Hainesville and the Marcellus has been stable, but at some point to offset unconventional gas and unconventional oil for that matter, which has a high decline initially, you've got to drill more wells. 
Jeff, let's take a quick break. When we return, we're going to get back on natural gas prices. You're listening to a new old patch radio show. We'll be right back. Attention small and medium-sized business owners. Are you feeling overwhelmed with back office tasks like payroll, workers' compensation, federal regulations, safety laws, employment standards, and benefits? Don't worry. Unique HR has your back. For over 30 years, our team of qualified professionals has been providing people-centered solutions to help businesses like yours navigate the heavy burden of running a business and managing their workforce. We're the PEO with a pulse, and we are just a phone call away. Call us today at 361-852-6392. Unique HR, the partner you can trust. Hey, when you're in business, you have to make a lot of tough choices. So let's talk about an easy one, your workers' comp coverage. If you're a propane or butane dealer or operator, you need to join the Lone Star Energy Safety Group through Texas Mutual Insurance Company. As a member, you'll automatically get a discount on your premium, plus you can earn double dividends that will go straight into your pocket. It's the easiest decision you'll ever make. Find out more at TexasMutual.com slash Lone Star Energy. Farmers and ranchers are the hardest working people on earth and deserve a side-by-side vehicle that works just as hard. That's why Yamaha makes the Viking an all-new Viking 6, the world's first true three- and six-person UTVs assembled in America. Ranked number one in drivetrain durability, Viking outworks and outclasses the competition in features, comfort, and off-road capability. For more, visit YamahaViking.com. Most dependable claim based on a 2013 Yamaha Source side-by-side owner study. And we're back here listening to you on the Old Patch Radio Show. My guest today is Jeff Robertson, who's Managing Director for Water Tower Research. Jeff, in your report, a Water Tower's report that was released November 14th, 2023, five trends to watch in 2024. Specifically, you guys looked at natural gas prices. The Biden administration has halted any new permitting for LNGs until they do more research. But your report shows that through October 24th, you it appears a report shows that you should that we should be seeing that price somewhere around $3.60. When you all did this research it was with an understanding that everything was going to continue the way it had been going. Now we have a little bit of a hiccup. What is the most updated thoughts you have on will this remain the same or is it going to change a little bit because of this new situation that's occurred with the Biden administration halting LNG? I think the the price forecasts that we will talk about probably are not really impacted that much by the deferral of LNG approvals. Those will be probably more impactful in 2025, 26, 27. So out in the outer years, I think what you've seen in the last couple of months is price price optimism has declined pretty substantially going into the winter. If you look back at the EIA price forecast that they, they published in October of 2023, the fourth quarter gas price estimate for the for 2024 at that time was $3.55 per MMBTU. The most recent forecast they put out just a week or so ago was $3.10. So they've changed their outlook pretty dramatically. A lot of that has to do with where production is, but a lot of it has to do with how, with the winter weather that we've had, which really has, except for a couple of weeks in in January, hasn't been that extreme. So I think the opti- that you've kind of faded the optimism about the winter, and it looks like we'll end the season with plenty of gas and storage, which tends to set the set the mindset for gas for gas prices over the rest of 2024 and really into 2025 as well. The most recent forecast or their initial 2025 forecast, which came out um, this month, is 295 per mmbtu, and 
the forecast, the updated forecast for 2026 was $2.66. And by comparison, in October, when we wrote our report, their forecast for 2024 full year was 323. So the market's volatile and mm -hmm. prices have come down. That's really more, I think, to do with near-term supply demand and near-term weather than it is the, the administration's decision on future LNG. That's, like I said, that's a longer-term uh, impact for the market. Forecasting is it's not for the week. There's just so much to consider. And you, and you also have to have a crystal ball and look out and see what is going to happen that you have no idea will happen. Uh, let's switch gears and talk about geopolitical tension. There's a lot going on. You know, we still have a conflict going on, Russia, Ukraine. Now, of course, we have Israel and Hamas. In your report, you guys talk about how there still continues to be instability in the global energy markets, especially due to Israel and Hamas. Can you talk to us about what your report reflects? I think that... There's a lot, there was a lot of concern when that war broke out in October about whether it will expand to more of a regional conflict and have a and therefore how is it going to impact oil prices? Oil prices haven't really reacted a lot since October. Actually, they're probably down since October. Yeah. But over the last couple of weeks, with increased uh, attacks on shipping in the Red Sea and more shipping companies deciding to reroute their vessels through around Africa and avoid some of these hotspot areas, that, that starts to, you start to wonder how that will factor into markets and inflation and the economy. And um, so that's that's probably the most near-term thing we look at. There's still, unless you, unless the conflict widens out to where it impacts production, in other words, take production offline for an extended period of time, it's harder probably to see that it's going to add a lot of volatility to oil prices. There was a lot of optimism, if you recall, not optimism is the wrong word since when we're talking about war, but there was a lot of speculation that um, the Russia, when the sanctions were placed on Russia, it would make it more difficult for Russia to sell oil and therefore oil prices spiked up to over hundred dollars a barrel. And over the, over the ensuing months, it became clear that Russia was finding markets for its oil that's and there correct. were buyers willing to take it, which uh, obviously getting a discount. So for the buyer, that might be good. But the notion that you weren't taking Russian barrels off the market helped cause oil prices to fall back to where they'd been before that war started. Because the, the, because the barrels were still in the market, you're not really affecting supply. You're just moving things around the chessboard. And I think that's what we've seen so far with this situation. And so I think <clears throat> from a volatility standpoint, it it's the price risk is probably not really reflected very much in the market. Um, and as of today, it's, it's doesn't really need to be, but there's always that issue is something happens and it sets off uh, a, a broader issue. Yeah. So for right now you're yeah. saying it's okay. Things could get worse then. I think, I think the risk that things get worse is probably not priced into where crude prices are trading today. Okay, let's take a quick break. When we return, I want to talk about your report citing consolidation. Obviously, the recent announcements of ExxonMobil and Pioneer and Hess and Chevron merging is something to talk about. But we're going to take a quick break. You're listening to a new Old Patch Radio show. We'll be right back. And we're back. You're listening to In the Old Patch Radio Show. My guest today is Jeff Robertson, who is Managing Director for Water Tower Research. 
Jeff, this report is great. I would encourage our listeners to go research. It's watertowerresearch.com, the five trends to watch 2024. It's a good report. It's a short report, but it's to the point. So let's look at consolidation. As I said before the break, we've there's a lot that's happening in the energy sector, uh, oil and gas specifically, a lot of mergers, and they continue rather. This is upstream, your report looked at consolidation, but there's also been a lot of consolidation in the midstream as well. Um, tell me what your report on consolidation reflects. What do you guys see happening? I think that there's there's a couple of things that drive consolidation, especially with respect to upstream, but it may be also in midstream and service. Um, one of which is to try to get to try to capture opportunities. If you if you're an upstream oil and gas company, you can grow one of two ways. You can grow organically by identifying a play, leasing acreage, spending the time and capital to develop that acreage into a meaningful play for whatever size company you are. Or you can acquire an existing play, which is probably, which has already been de-risked and add opportunities that way. In an industry where your assets decline every day, companies need to continue to try to look for opportunities to replace declining production and ideally grow their asset base. Um, I think a lot of the consolidation that we've seen in recent years, especially coming after after the bankruptcy wave in 2019, 2020, was companies acquiring other companies to take costs out of the business. So acquiring production, acquiring drilling opportunities, which are future growth opportunities, eliminate costs, and given the industry's um, preference for distributing cash to shareholders, adding to the free cash flow generation capability of a company so they can pay dividends, repurchase shares, and uh, tend to their balance sheet. I think that's what we've seen that's been behind a lot of these recent transactions, and my guess is it will continue um, at least over the course of 2024. This is an industry that always consolidates whether, but I think consolidation also creates, ultimately creates opportunities for smaller companies because in the example of say Exxon and Pioneer, they put those two companies together and there may be assets within the overall company that now become non-core and they, they may look to sell and that those divestiture packages create another round of opportunities for smaller companies or even some of the private equity backed companies. And you talk a little bit uh, on the midstream side, too, because there was the consolidation between, uh, what was it, Energy Transfer and Crestwood. I think Kinder Morgan, we've seen them acquire. Can you talk a little bit in the midstream as well? I think those are similar, maybe ultimately the similar similar rationale. If you can buy a system, if you're a midstream company and can buy a system that you can somehow integrate into your existing footprint, um, it just gives you more control or maybe um, more ways to leverage that system with potential customers. And, and it ultimately allows you to eliminate, again, eliminate costs and generate free cash flow. So I think from a midstream system, if you can buy a, a, a pipeline network or a gathering system or terminals that you can tie into your existing infrastructure, you might uh, the buyer might be able to add value to the asset where the seller might have an asset on an island and they really can't do a lot because they can't integrate. So if there's a lot of ways to add value, but it tends to be leveraging the existing footprint with the additional asset and trying to 
leverage that into more cash flow or more relationships with customers. Makes sense. Um, let's talk about capital returns. What is it, um, the commitment to returning capital to shareholders, uh, that is like really important, right? Nobody wants to invest if they're not going to get dividends back. What do you see in that area of capital returns? You know, that, there was a big change in the industry probably in 2016, 17, 18, especially among the larger companies. Investors had grown pretty frustrated that they'd funded a lot of capital or, or funded a lot of equity and they hadn't really seen much of a return on that. I remember they, that they were very upset. It's <laughs> not buying and return money. <laughs> right. And so companies went away from really a growth mode and valuations were started to reflect that in more of a, well, we can maintain production or grow at a relatively modest level and generate a significant amount of excess cash flow. Obviously, that goes up and down with commodity price, but investors started to demand and companies basically paid attention to returning cash through dividends, in many cases, fixed dividends, plus in some cases, a variable component, depending on excess cash above certain thresholds um, and buying back shares. So that's really become the mantra of the industry, not only among the big cap companies, but also many of the smaller cap companies have investors who expect to get some sort of dividend and the management teams are, um, probably incented to try to grow the dividend as opposed to just focusing on growth. So Jeff, pertaining to capital returns, years back, Harold Ham was at a luncheon and he discussed as an independent operator how the need for a little bit more discipline in how they were acquiring acreage, drilling themselves into a lower uh, uh crude amount because they would put so much out on the market and, and it really disrupted everything. I think uh, we could see it in the way OPEC was responding to the new North America shell plays due to the Eagle Ford shell. And um, and I wonder, looking back on that time, which was what, maybe 10 years ago or so, to now that so much has changed, what do you see has evolved in the way of how operators, rather their independents or large major operators, um, what has the what has the oil and gas industry learned? Operators, EMPs. I think what they've learned most is uh, discipline. You know, there was a time in the early days of the shale plays. You had North America, which was thought to basically have limited investment opportunities for new plays. Uh, the Barnett, the Haynesville, the Fayetteville, the Marcellus, all among the gas plays, the Eagleford, now the Permian and the Bakken among the oil plays, really took basins that were in some time, some cases quite mature and opened up tremendous new drilling opportunities. So there was really a push to go out for independent companies, public and private, to go out and capture acreage. Capturing acreage with drilling, uh, with lease expirations, meaning you, you then have to go drill that acreage. So companies essentially bought acreage, then they had to fund a capital program, and ultimately were in almost most of them were in a scenario where they were outspending cash flow just to try to get on top of their asset base. That uh, led to a lot of debt accumulation on balance sheets, a lot of equity fun uh, funding. And then when we had commodity prices fall out of bed in, in 2000 or following the 2008 recession, then again, roughly in 2014 and in 2018, 2019, you had a lot of companies that were 
had very bad balance sheets and you had several different waves of bankruptcy. So I think that's where investor frustration really grew and invest in companies went from kind of a boom bust cycle to a focus on returning cash, which instills more discipline on how capital is allocated, more discipline on growth, and probably makes, like I said earlier, makes the sector more investable for invest for people uh, as they think about this industry. Perfect. Jeff, we're going to take a quick break. When we return, I want to talk about CCCS, carbon capture, and sequestration. You're listening to a new Old Patch Radio show. We'll be right back. And we're back. You're listening to an Oil Patch Radio Show. My guest today is Jeff Robertson, who's the Managing Director of Water Tower Research. Jeff, you guys released a report November 14th, 2023. So it's fairly new. Five trends to watch in 2024, which we will be watching to see how you guys did. Looks like it's a stellar report our listeners should go to. Carbon capture and sequestration is also made the list. And we've all heard of carbon capture and sequestration. First of all, uh, for some of the listeners... Uh, they may not necessarily know what these two things mean. So can you briefly break that down and then we'll go into what the report means? Sure. Car- carbon capture is essentially refers to, to carbon dioxide. So there's really two ways to recover carbon dioxide. One is from an existing industrial emitter, like some sort of a power plant or industrial facility that as a byproduct of their process, they emit CO2 into the atmosphere. Um, that is really drawn a lot of attention to the Gulf Coast area of the U.S. where you have a lot of CO2 emissions and also a lot of underground geologic formations that could hold CO2 emissions. The other form, and we'll, we'll kind of come back to that, is what's called direct air capture or DAC. Direct air capture is basically tr- goal is to try to pull CO2 out of the atmosphere Occidental it, uh, has a joint venture through their uh, one point, I think it's called 1.5 Energy, their, their low carbon solutions business to build what I think is the largest direct air capture project in the world out in West Texas. With That's the goal of re- basically recovering CO2 from the atmosphere and then injecting it into the ground in a geologic formation for permanent storage. Some of the motivation behind these types of projects is number one, to meet companies. Uh, environmental goals to reduce their carbon footprint. Secondly, is to take advantage of tax credits, which were initially included in uh, what's called 45Q, and then expanded in the Inflation Reduction Act, which was signed into law, that uh, increased the type of credits available to emitters to capture CO2 and inject it into the ground. So I think it's a way for the industry overall to try to lower its carbon footprint. And we've seen both large companies like Exxon and Occidental and Chevron uh, some of the midstream companies, including Kinder Morgan and uh, Enlink, and then some of the even independent producers like Talos are involved in carbon capture and storage projects, whether it's in West Texas for Occidental or along the Gulf Coast for some of these other companies. And that was the reason we talked about consolidation earlier, but that was really the driving factor why Exxon acquired a company called Denberry Inc. earlier this year because Denberry owned a pipeline network that, that transported carbon dioxide along the Gulf Coast and had advanced or was in the process of advancing several CCS projects along the Gulf Coast. So Exxon bought that company with the notion of that becoming one of their ways to support their low carbon strategy uh, business. And it got a lot of attention in their December 6th analyst day and their slide deck they published was their initiatives on low carbon emissions. I think for 
at some level, there's there has to be an economic benefit for shareholders. I think a lot of companies are also trying to show that they are interested in being environmental stewards and offsetting their own emissions. And kind of like we talked about earlier, it makes them more investable to investors who look at that type of activity as something they need to check off to be able to invest capital in, in, a, in an industry. Yeah. The diversification among these companies is amazing. And, and it kind of, I guess, correlates back to the whole ESG, environmental social governance, in which uh, what Wall Street investors are not really looking to invest in the old oil and gas, if that's all you are going to do, but they will look at investing in new projects if they're switching gears and, and diversifying their portfolio, if you will, into greener technologies as well. So I'm assuming this is why we're seeing this. But uh, it's amazing to see when I look out all the different companies, they're going into all different things, whether it's hydrogen, CCS, uh, sequestration. Um, they're all moving to try to find a solution for lowering our carbon, uh, lowering our carbon footprint and uh, considering climate change. So uh, to me, it's a good thing. Um, can you tell us a little bit about sequestration and where is this being utilized? What is that all about? Sure. See, what people should understand is, the oil and gas industry, especially the oil industry, has been injecting carbon dioxide into the ground for decades. In West Texas, they've injected CO2 as a way to recover incremental oil out of reservoirs called uh, tertiary oil recovery. So that's been a big business in the in the in West Texas probably since the 1970s. It's been a business in the Rocky Mountains in certain old oil fields, probably similar uh, length of time. Um, it was a business in Mississippi, which is how Denberry got its roots, was buying some, some fields where, they, where the previous owners were injecting carbon dioxide into old oil reservoirs with the goal of moving that, helping that move more oil out of the ground. They then process the, the fluid that comes out of the ground, take the oil, uh, obviously sell that, strip out CO2 and re-inject that into the ground. So that, that's something that the industry has been doing probably off and on since the 1970s or 80s. So it's not really new technology to most of these companies. Really what sequestration is, is uh, injecting fluid into an underground reservoir. That's what the industry is very good at. They obviously have to understand the reservoir and the reservoir properties to produce oil and gas from the ground and understanding how, what the pore space is like and what the capacity is to inject the fluid back into the ground is something that they're very adept at especially along the Gulf Coast where there's a lot of seismic imaging available and they're very porous rocks. So there's very high quality uh, reservoir rocks or saline aquifers, which you can put CO2 into. What they have to identify it, uh, is, is it permanently, will it be permanently stored in a formation? And that's important because that's one of the things uh, companies have to monitor to qualify for tax credits. But basically what they're doing is extending the skill sets that they've developed, that the industry developed over decades to bring oil and gas out of the ground to the surface and sell it, to take a, a captured fluid now in the course of CO2, compress it into a form it can be injected into the ground and, and put it away and, and store it and monitor it. So it's really an extension of technology or, or uh, skill sets that have been developed into a new opportunity. Now, one of the things that you guys do well, uh, as well, excuse me, Water Tower Research, is you'll also cover green 
and energy projects. And this is actually lining up with them. So in many ways, the energy sector, whether it's uh, Chevron, ExxonMobil, Talus, your report reflects, and many others, uh, Oxy, are moving into this green area. And I love the end of your report where it says here, the commercial terms of these projects crystallize as they crystallize. Investors could begin to assign tangible value, meaning maybe um, some of the environmental groups will uh be happy that um, the energy industry is moving in that direction that they want them to go to. Jeff, that is all the time we have. For anyone to review this report, get a hold of you guys, companies that might want you to hire you guys to do some research for them. Folk that Remember, you guys focus on the smaller to midstream energy companies versus the large. Where would they go to find information on your company and contact uh, maybe you or someone in your company? The best place to look is at our website, which is watertellerresearch.com. Uh, anyone can access our research. Um, Basically, all we all we require is an email and a password, and then a, an investor can access anything on our website and participate in any of the fireside chats and, and any of the events that we that we put on. Which is really very cool because most of these companies that are research based do charge. What other areas before we go? Do you guys cover besides energy? We do energy. We do consumer discretionary. We do some consumer hard lines. We do some technology. Uh, we do some healthcare. We do some chemicals and material sciences. So it's really a pretty broad uh, cross-section of the, of the economy. Jeff, thank you for being a guest today on In the Oil Patch Radio Show. We look forward to looking at more of your research and having you back on the show in the near future. Thanks for having me. In the Oil Patch is where, together, we explore topics that affect us all in oil, gas, business, and in your community. Every week, your host, Kim Bilotto, will visit with the movers and shakers in this fast-paced industry. You'll hear from industry experts, elected officials, and many more right here on In the Oil Patch. 